Hello, everybody, and welcome to the For the Win podcast. Uh, before we get started, we got to hear from our uh, sponsors at Buffalo Wild Wings, who love a Cinderella story. It's a tale of the underdog, the unexpected. And by their unexpected nature, you can't just predict when one is going to happen. It makes them great, but it also makes them frustrating, because at any moment, you could miss that Cinderella sighting. Unless you're spending March at B-Dubs, the official hangout for NCAA March Madness. Here, you'll catch every second of every game, and you'll be able to look back and tell the story of the team you watched climb their way from a low seed to the champions. But only if you go to Buffalo Wild Wings, Wings, Beer, Sports. All right. My guest today, that's actually a perfect segue, is somebody who is well-versed in March Madness, who is a big college basketball fan and other uh, sports as well, but uh, a very smart dude. And also one of the biggest Kansas fans, maybe the biggest Kansas fan I know. Andrew Joseph, welcome to the For the Win podcast. How are you today? Doing great, Charles. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so Andrew writes about a lot of stuff for us uh, for For the Win. Uh, he lives out in Arizona, but he he attended Kansas. And so let's just let's just start off. How are you feeling as a Jayhawks fan right now with this crazy crazy bracket? Well, in, ter- in terms of Kansas, I think. Um, Heading into, especially heading into the conference play, I think most people who followed Kansas would not expect this team to go very far this year. But then, you know, they kind of hit their stride in late February, winning games against West Virginia and Texas Tech and Oklahoma. And then now, I mean, they won their record 14th straight Big 12 title. They won the Big 12 tournament title. They're number one seed. So I think if you would ask me where Kansas would have been back in December, I probably would have expected a three or four seed of being a one seed and being in the only major conference champion in the second weekend. It's kind of a surprise. It's kind of a, a, a pleasant turnaround for their season for sure. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're an expert, uh, you might think that, that Syracuse's run, which is super duper unexpected, uh, might come to an end against Duke, which means if Kansas makes it past Number five, Clemson in the Midwest, they get to face, uh, you know, everybody hates them, everybody, you know, except if you're a Duke fan, Duke. So are you, you know, I, you don't want to look past uh, Clemson, but are you sort of like nervous that, that, that you know, facing Coach K and, and, and Marvin Bagley and all that will, will be a problem? I think for just for the craziness of this tournament, for, from a CBS standpoint, for it to be Kansas Duke in the lead eight, I think it'd be like a dream for them. Um, Duke's talent. I mean, they're heading the season, their most talented team in college basketball. I think it took a little while for, for them to kind of get their bearings and chemistry. And that's that's to be expected with a young team because you had uh, Marvin Bagley coming in as a – should have been a high school senior right now. He reclassified, come in late. So there, there was still chemistry to get together. But I think the past couple of weeks with Duke, you've seen the team that they could – that they should have ended up being and – they're hitting their stride at the right time. So, as far as Kansas' chances would be against Duke, um, I think I think it would be tough just given the the front court depth that Duke has. Kansas kind of only has Udoka Azubuki, and who's who's coming off an injury. Then he has Mitch Lightfoot, who's undersized, especially going up against Duke's front line, and Sylvia DeSosa, who's come on the past week or so. And he's pl- he played great in the Big 12 tournament, but this was somebody who was in high school in December, and he had to reclassify and graduate early just because Kansas didn't have the bodies. And he took a little while to, to get going, but he had he had one of uh, his breakout performances in the Big 12 title game. 
I just love that we're talking about reclassifying in two different cases. It just shows yeah. me that, that college basketball is, uh, you know, off the court at least, is a little bit of a mess in its own way, and it's always For kind sure. of been. Yeah. Um, the FBI stuff hasn't really kind of jumped into this tournament, I feel like, um, from a coverage standpoint. And I think that's okay. I think people kind of are aware of that. Um, but let's talk generally more about the tournament in general. Like, have you had, like, a favorite moment? Is there, like, a team besides, obviously, the Jayhawks that you've been, like, you know, I don't know, jumped on their bandwagon, anything like that. Well, I think I think the UMBC game, like that, the Virginia upset. I think that just kind of stood out by far. You don't almost <laughs> would have to be like other than that. Speaking of which, how's your bracket doing? You know, I have seven <laughs> of them. Um, my USA Today bracket got busted. Yeah, Andrew's bringing this up uh, to troll me, and uh, he should, um, because I picked Arizona to win it all in the uh, for the win bracket game, and uh, yeah. That didn't I go so well. I tried to warn everybody. You did. Everybody, everybody was jumping on Arizona, which is understandable because they're so talented. But most it, people hadn't really watched Arizona this year. Yeah, that's they play it. so late. And you, you hear about DeAndre Aiden, Alonzo Trier, so you think that okay, this team has all this talent, but and they they were a mess defensively all year, and kind of kind of got a glimpse of that in that Buffalo game where yeah. the effort just was non-existent like they took that punch from buffalo and they just stopped trying and that was kind of you know they uh they played in a, in a week pack 12 conference this year and they played well but you know the teams that they're going up against they really have that challenge that they had against buffalo and you saw how they responded to it right well this, this is where i get to rant which is like the, the <laughs> south region is is such a mess you've got basically you've got the nine seed the five seed that's kentucky who i think probably is easily the favorite at this point you got loyola chicago that has made it through you know last second heroics twice and nevada who has played really really well um so i'm kind of like ticked off because like okay arizona could have beaten buffalo and they got they got wiped out um in that game by the bulls and then, you know, Kentucky, I know a lot of people are high on now. Obviously, the path is, is huge. And before the tournament, though, there were some questions about them. So I'm sitting there like, Arizona had their chance. They really did. And they completely blew it. And it's funny you say that about defense. I got a text message from – I have a friend's group that talks basketball. And we get texts every day. And one of them the next day was like, did anyone realize that, that Arizona was ranked like 130th in defensive yeah. efficiency? And I was like – Nope, didn't know that. And that, like, I, I want to, like, say to our listeners, and you probably agree with me, like, go and look at the stats right before you make your picks, right? Because if you're if you're living in Arizona like Andrew is, you see their games. But if you're not, like, you, you got to do a little bit. I, I read a lot. I did not read that part. What is your thought yeah. on that? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people really dive into the, the analytics, especially when they're making a bracket. I usually just kind of just go with my gut just because, as we saw, like, this past week, like, none of it really mattered. No. Like, so it. much craziness happened. Like, the top defensive team in the country, Virginia, and then arguably the second best one, Cincinnati, both didn't make it out the first weekend. So, so I, I think part of it, yeah, like the analytics definitely play in, but also you never know if a player is going to get hot and just kind of power a team into the Sweet 16. So we saw a lot of a lot of the parity that from this entire regular season kind of play out in complete and utter chaos when it came to the tournament, and it was fun to watch. Yeah, especially if if you didn't really have anything riding into your bracket. 
just to watch everything go down was great. Yeah, it really was. And, and uh, I, I want to point out something. I went to, I think I mentioned it last week on the podcast when we had our, our editor, uh, Nina Mandel, on that when I went to the Turner um, CBS event that they have every year with all the media, Charles Barkley, who everyone makes fun of for not knowing anything about college basketball, but obviously he does know some things, he said, you know, it, he would be surprised to see you know no one seeds in the second weekend he said basically some effect of like it's wide open this year and he was absolutely 100 percent right um and i'm excited to see what kind of happens next is there a team that you right now think is it is it villanova is it villanova is the the, the clear favorite i mean I, no no offense to your your jayhawks but do you feel like villanova's got the path to, to do it all i, I think villanova definitely is probably it's probably the the favorite heading in just because they have a really favorable road going forward i think i think kentucky has to be really pleased with what they have too i don't i wouldn't probably consider them a favorite if they make the san antonio but i think they they probably have as good as good of a chance to get there as any team remaining just because you know they're going up against a very average k-state team i think from a talent standpoint kentucky even though they hadn't hadn't showed their their best form throughout the regular season i think once it becomes gets in the tournament and gets in that second weekend that's usually when you see the talent and the size kind of prevail and going up against k-state i just think that'll be it's kind of the matchup they're dreaming of i think their their main threat would probably be nevada just because nevada you know, they, they've been playing with that chip on their shoulder all tournament and how they came back against cincinnati i think it just shows what kind of team they are um but Still, I, I would say Kentucky has the easiest chance to get to San Antonio for sure. It's just crazy to me that that Kentucky continues to be, and we'll see if it happens. You know, after they play Kansas State, and if they you know make it to the to San Antonio, it's just funny to me that they they ended up winning a few years ago when they had a team that wasn't even close to you know people said oh no you know this is not the usual Kentucky team and they continue to do it. Is it just Coach Cal or is it just? the way he recruits or is is you know is it the coach is it the teams or is it both well it definitely plays in his recruiting i think that that 2012 team had like the perfect blend because you had you had those one and done players and you had a generational mm-hmm. player with anthony davis and you still had solid one and dones you had eric bledsoe on that team and marcus teague but then you but then you had those those two-year guys also i mean there was um what was Julius Randall on that team? I can't remember. I don't six remember. Years ago. Yeah, yeah. But but I know um, but I know they had had that blend of one and dones, and then guys that stayed the next year, and that kind of played out having that experience. And you hadn't really seen that blend with Kentucky. It's usually been, you know, a team loaded with star freshmen, and then kind of reboot the next year. And that and that's kind of what we've seen with them in terms of being able to make runs but not turn that into championships despite having the most talent out of any team. And the year that they went, what, 38-1, and one, I think that was probably their best team since 2012. But it was totally loaded with freshmen. It was, you know, they, they had that platoon system where you know, they had so many McDonald's All-Americans that they just played five and then five and reloaded it, but it didn't get done when it, when it became time in March. 
Yeah. No, it, it's it's wild to me. I just I love I love the thing I love about March Madness is you end up with these stories, um, yeah. particularly with these coaches who have been here before. And, and you know, it's a, it's a tournament where coaching really matters. And we've seen it in the first two rounds a lot where, you know, coach doesn't adjust to what's going on. And suddenly, you know, they're in trouble or they, they can't, you know, they, they can't do it. I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um, can you I, think, I think of one? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's what we see with Syracuse's success because yeah. that, and, and Stephen Ruiz wrote wrote a, a really good piece about that, just how that two three zone is awful to watch. Like from if you're not a Syracuse fan, I don't think anybody likes watching Syracuse basketball <laughs> just because it's so it just looks so bad to watch. But it plays it has success in March because it's hard to prepare for that. No other team really plays that specific style and when you have what, less than two days to prepare in a quick turnaround like we saw in michigan state how confu- how totally clueless they looked against the zone you know they're just wasting they're passing around the perimeter and then throwing up a, a deep three at the end of the shot clock and that that's exactly what Bayheim kind of wants teams to do and if you're not attacking it um you know it's it's hard to win and you know we've seen every team that went up against Syracuse's tournament starting with Arizona State all had problems attacking that zone and it, it just looks intimidating because I think they're the tallest or maybe the second tallest team in all of college basketball but from a talent standpoint they're not that intimidating but when you're going up against all those bodies it just seems easier to shoot over the zone but that's playing into their style and that's another reason why a very mediocre Syracuse team has a chance to make another deep run which is just crazy. It just it reminds yeah. me of the of the the New Jersey Devils, and it's I don't know if it's an apt comparison. Um, I'm more of a hockey guy than I am a college basketball guy. But the, when the Devils had the the neutral zone trap going for all those years, where you know you didn't necessarily need all their their scoring to do uh, the damage because they had this this you know this strategy set up where you couldn't get by their you know the the wall that was set up in in the uh, the neutral zone, and it's like. It's it's terrible for the sport, you know, and I, I love Steven's column about it. You all should go read it if you're listening. Um, and I just, I found it really fascinating that, you know, it's the defense wins championship, but it's like a really annoying defense, right? Like, that's kind of the, 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 the frustrating thing about it is like, it's legal, but it works, you know, and, and it, it, it like really it annoying. like feel it feels cheap and dirty. But yeah, like credit to, to Beham, he built a call, Hall of Fame career on it. He won, won a national title with it. But it doesn't. If you want to be an NBA player, like you look at at what he's produced, he hasn't had any solid pros other than Carmelo Anthony. That's so like crazy. like his second best pro is Dion Waiters. And he's been uh, you know up and down yeah. his pro career, yeah, to say the exactly. Least. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's we're, before we move on to uh, to the human side of the March Madness stuff, since that's what we do on the For the Win podcast. Let's uh, let's jump in and hear from our sponsor. Support for the For the Win podcast comes to our from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient. 
Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com FTW. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, Andrew, we are here with Andrew Joseph, writer of many, many things on uh, For the Wind's website, but also a uh, big college hoops guy and Kansas fan, as you, you heard before. Um, what are some of the human interest stories that you have loved during this tournament? Well, I think I think Sister Jean definitely stands out. She's yes. like been the star. And the best thing is, okay, so she's 98 years old, which is obviously super old, but she's <laughs> totally all there. And then she's not only the spiritual leader, but like she gives the team a scouting report. Like like if you listen to or heard any of her interviews before the game, she'll she'll discuss like Tennessee's front line and like what they have to do rebounding. And it's like okay, like she's the best. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, Sister Jean is is emerging uh, uh, from this tournament as like the the personality. I feel like once a year, since sort of the the inception of viral uh, stuff in sports happening, there's always been like one star. Like it was the crying Piccolo girl a few years ago. Um, There's been like the crying Northwestern fan. Although we can get into the crying fans in a second. Um, Yeah. But but yeah, like Sister Jean, uh, who is loyal to Chicago's spiritual leader and and a chaplain, I think is technically what she is. Um, but I love that her sense of humor too. Like she is really snappy, like in a funny way. Like she was on Good Morning America. We're, we're taping this on Tuesday morning, so she did it on Tuesday, and she talked about um, how you know they pray before games for their team, but they also pray for uh, you know like she prays a little less for the other team. I'm like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> it's it's really it's really great. Um, speaking of which, there's been some complaints on Twitter about all the crying fans that. Uh, cameras have found do you do you find that this is like a huge big deal big problem i'm not sure if it's like a huge deal but it it does feel like we've seen you know cbs and turner kind of look for the crying young fan in the crowd and then it just feels this year it's it's been younger like the the kids like they don't seem they seem like really young kids and they're crying and they keep on showing them repeatedly so i can definitely see why a lot of viewers are kind of upset because it, it does feel like, you know, that they're they're getting a, a cheap bit of um, of emotion out of out of their shot. Like we know, like the teams are emotional. You can find a player on the bench who's upset, or you can find a student, like a college age person, who's upset. Like, so why would they have to go go after a young kid? So I definitely see that side of it. I don't think it's like the biggest controversy, but this this tournament it does feel like that they've shown younger fans than they've used to and i can see like in that sense i can see why people are upset about it what about you i you know i i don't think it's a big deal because i think that that we're in the bit look look at the business you and i are in um we're trying to find those you know moments that people will will look at and and yeah you know I don't want to say it's always a viral moment, but, you know, that's that's what people will look at. And I think CBS is, and, and Turner, they're just trying to find those moments for themselves um, because it, you're right. It does paint a picture like that. I don't know. I've seen a couple of, of games where I've been like, oh, there's there's the crying kid um, or that kid's going to go over. I think I was in a – where was I? I was somewhere on a Friday night and I was looking at the TV and I was like, oh, 
you know, like I, I was off. So, you know, I was wondering if you were one of our night editors got it. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, you know, there goes another crying fan. So I think, you know, maybe maybe it's become cliche a little bit. But at the same time, I, I get why. Um, and I yeah. think that, that people are looking for those those moments. And, they've, you know, the funny thing is the CBS's and, and other cameras have captured it. Like there's that photo, the screen grab that everyone has from Houston, Michigan, right after the Jordan Poole shot. And, and it's, you know, of a player, Houston player on the ground, you know, with his head in his hands looking at the floor. And there's Michigan in the background celebrating. Yeah, in the backdrop of the celebration. Yeah. Right. I, I, think, I saw that. And, yeah. Yeah, I think for that's sure. It was, like, it was like the perfect photo for March just because it had the, you know, the, the difference between the agony and then the jubilation. Yep. Like right there in one shot. It was perfect. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, as they used to say on uh, on Wide World of Sports, like that that really does capture it. Um, I'm trying to think of other other characters. I mean, I think the UMBC Twitter account run by we got an interview with the uh, our Michelle Martinelli got an interview with uh, with the, uh, the the guy who runs the account, and it's just it's that's always fun. Um, I feel like that's a thing in sports that I will never stop getting tired of is the really funny person who tweets for a team you know i think that is has become such a valuable role to teams that infusing uh these teams with personalities is the way to go it makes it it feel human as opposed to you know beep boop here's a team you know say, saying trying to be funny when there is somebody on the other end being funny yeah yeah and it couldn't have worked out like any better for them too because like with with that guy it wasn't his like full-time job to really tweet for them he usually works like on the uh helping with the media side if i understand what he's what he was explaining his story was but then he kind of was asked if he wanted to do it for the the virginia game and he looked at what other teams like like the hawks and the the trailblazers yeah like and how their twitter accounts are full of personality he wanted to do that and then it ended up being like the greatest upset in tournament history and you know, it totally boosted the profile of that school. Like, if it, if they were just tweeting scores, I don't think that, like, obviously it would have been a huge deal because it was 16-1, but I don't think people really would have, like, enjoyed the entire experience of what was going on. Like, I think their Twitter account and his personality really added to the entire experience of watching the 16 beat a 1. Yeah, and speaking of which, by the way, that to me is the lasting story of this tournament, regardless of what happens. Um, yeah. For years. And it's funny, like, I, I was working elsewhere um, in, I want to say it was 2012. Um, I think that was the right, uh, 2011 or 2012, doesn't matter. The, the story is that I pitched to an editor, I said, we should be writing about, like, when is a 16 going to be to 1? And everybody in the room rolled their eyes and, like, was like, oh, come on, you know it's never going to happen. And I said, bah! Like, I've heard people over the years talk about how it's getting closer and closer. Like, you know, can't we just, like, interview somebody and just find out, like, are we any closer? You know, try to kind of, you know, answer that question. And that, you know, it, it ended up getting written up and, and it was, you know, uh, I don't know how much of a hit it was. But I was sort of like, you know, over the years, you start start to happen. It's getting closer and closer and closer. Like, did you expect this to happen ever? You know, like, I think somebody tweeted or said, uh, you know, I think it was Raph. Um, who uh, uh, Bill Raftery, who, who who was interviewed, and he said, you know, we all thought it might happen, but we never really thought it would happen. Do you feel that way? I was more like I would have to see it to believe it. I yeah. thought like you never you never know what what can happen in a game. Um, I think Virginia was like the perfect kind of team for that to happen to, just because how defensively oriented they are. 
and they never really trailed all season. So when they found themselves down 14 points in the second half, that was their biggest lead, biggest deficit of the year. And they didn't have the offensive firepower to really go and erase that really quickly. Like most one seeds have tons of athletes and that ability to erase quickly a quick uh, deficit just based on three point shooting and, and, their uh, transition offense but Virginia never really played that style because they play such a, a slowed down offensive pace and they just focus on defense so when UMBC was just answering and hitting every three and answering every basket but from UVA with the layup of their own it kind of just it stayed around that 14 range until they kind of blew open at the under four timeout but I think in general with the one seed I don't. I'm not even sure it might not even happen again. I think that was one of those those perfect nights where everything just went right for one team, and it was the right style of team for it to happen against. If you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I didn't even think of it that way. Like what what the factors are, but I I I, I think that uh, I, I never I never thought it would happen. I really didn't. I I said you know we're getting closer, but maybe it's another 50 years before it actually happens. Yeah. And and I I have to fully admit and this is the worst i had to go to sleep early that night i had to wake up early the next morning and i woke up and i looked at my phone and i was like it happened it was like christmas morning it was like oh my god it really <laughs> happened oh my and it's and they but they beat him by 20 what yeah you know? they, they beat him by 20 that's why living on the west coast is great because yeah. you no know, all the games end like the the last game ends at 10 p.m like Ugh. instead of tipping off at 10 p.m., it's, it's great. It's the dream. You yeah, have your, you have your whole do. night. You can watch sports all day and have your whole, whole night left. I've always said that's the dream of of you know having like living on the East Coast for for me living on the East Coast with West Coast sports timing because, like you said, you know your your World Series games end at like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and you know instead of like one o'clock in the morning if it's uh, two in the morning, two yeah. in the morning, yeah, or whatever it might be, and you get NFL games, you get to roll out of bed and look at NFL games like that to me is by far the coolest thing yeah it's it's only bad for because i watch like premier league soccer like oh yeah like I, like i watch chelsea and when we we just changed back to pacific time because we're arizona and we're weird yeah um you are. <laughs> so, so now some of the matches start at like 4 55 a.m and then like i won't watch those like i'm not gonna wake up that early no and why so, would you yeah so so yeah i'll just end up having to like watch highlights in those cases but yeah, usually it's great. And then I think back to the 16 seed. I think um, like the popular pick this year was Penn to be Kansas. Right. And I I didn't really, I know Penn was super underseeded and and it, it was it felt unfair to Penn just because it was almost like the committee saw that Penn was the two seed in the Ivies and Harvard would have been a 16, so they just penciled in Penn, even though Penn was the better team all year. They were the two seed based on like a weird tiebreaker. So it, it felt unfair for Penn for that seeding, but still they were a 14 or 15 seed at best. And Kansas plays that fast four guard style. So I didn't see how possibly, even though they did, Penn had like that early lead and kept it close. I didn't see how they would be able to beat Kansas just based on the matchups. I thought that that Virginia was the kind of style of a team that would, that would be more susceptible to losing to a 16. But still, I didn't think it was going to happen. It yeah. just would have been like, you have to have a team that plays a slow pace that is unfamiliar with losing. And Virginia had two losses all year. And they just, they win game. They they won a game that was like 49 to 36 this year. Like they win 
low scoring games with very small amounts of possessions because they use so much shot clock. Yeah, they're so slow paced. Kansas, I mean, that's a team that suits some of the best threes in the country. They run up and down the court. They have Devontae Graham, and then they have Yudoka Azabuki when he's healthy, and he should be healthy this week. So I didn't really see how why Penn was the pop. I understood why Penn was the popular, but I didn't see how any way that was going to happen. Well, you know, yeah. I do, and I think that that what you're saying is actually something that I, I will take away for future. I mean, I'm never going to do a 16 one seed pick in, <laughs> in a bracket pool, but I think the idea that like this was like one game out of a hundred and however fifty, you know, sixteen versus one match it's probably more than that right whatever it is it's like the first time they were they were oh and 135, 135 heading into the umbc game they were the the 136 because they expanded to to 64 or 68 back like i don't know what year i think it was like 85 right but but yeah, yeah so they, they were oh and 135 heading into the last 116 game of the night right so less so than one percent right yeah yeah, and I, so, so to me, I think the lesson here is maybe it was like all the stars aligned in the right way with like the right team, the, the sort of the, the weird team that got hot at the weird time, the the hot team the, that got cold at the wrong time, and the defensive offensive matchup that just didn't. You, you know. just and they just fell apart when they were down because like and you watch how they if you saw the replays or the highlights how they played like they start giving up easy baskets because they started panicking and it was like. And they were not used to playing that faster style when they needed to make a quick comeback. That they gave up a three, and then the next possession, Virginia goes down and misses a shot with like two seconds left on the shot clock. There was no sense of urgency, so so they were stubbornly staying in their style. And then at around ten minutes left in the game, they just kind of unraveled when they started panicking. Ah, you know what that is? That's coaching people. <laughs> what yeah. we were talking about before. I don't know how Tony like how. Like the Falcons have twenty eight three. I don't know how UVA is gonna like ever move past one sixteen. Oh, like, it says says the Atlanta it, Falcons. That's like fan. the new thing. You got you got three one lead. You got twenty eight three. Now you got one sixteen. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, and Andrew. I almost called you Andy because I'm looking at your Twitter. Um, you can find An- Andy Joseph, <laughs> Andrew Joseph at Andy Joseph, but the the O is a zero. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's because I have a really common name. Yeah. So there you go. So go and go find Andrew's stuff on Twitter. He is always active, always great, always has something to say. Andrew, thank you for joining us, uh, and uh, hope to have you on soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Charles. Yeah.